0: ASN Kidney Week 2018 in San Diego, California, featured presentations of multiple high-impact clinical trials which presented new insights into various areas of nephrology. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, Dr. Pascal Lane and Dr. Kelly
1: Hindman discuss these trials and share their thoughts. Good afternoon. I'm Kelly Hindman from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I'm Pascal Lane
0: from the University of Oklahoma and we had the pleasure during Kidney Week 2018 of hosting the High Impact Clinical
1: Trials press conference. So the first trial we heard from was from Dr. Perkovic and he introduced us to the CARMELINA trial. And so this trial was a double blind trial, randomized people with type 2 diabetes and CKD and they received lingagliptin, a DPP inhibitor or placebo, and so their primary outcome was to determine if it was safe in this patient cohort. So their population included two-thirds of individuals who had significant reduction in kidney function and even included people on renal replacement therapy. So, Pascal, can you tell us a bit about what they found?
0: Well, basically, they found improved glycemic control with the DPP as one would expect. Uh, Their initial endpoint were cardiovascular outcomes, and there was no safety problem with using this in the kidney disease population. The change in GFR over the course of the study was not affected by the However, it did seem to slow progression of albuminuria by about 13%. Yeah. It's not clear what that means in this population, though. It is exciting to have another hypoglycemic agent, though, that is safe to use and effective in patients, even those with end-stage kidney failure.
1: Right, yeah. I thought it was really exciting that this drug is not secreted by the kidney, and so it's cleared by the liver, and so they really showed nicely that it is safe for people with reduced kidney function. The second trial we heard from was the Proactive IVR Iron Therapy in Hemodialysis Patients, or the PIVOTAL trial and it was designed to compare the effect of two distinct IV iron dosing regimens on clinical outcomes, including mortality and cardiovascular events, as well as infection risk among hemodialysis patients. This was a multi-center, open-label, blinded endpoint controlled trial involving over 2,100 hemodialysis patients, and they were receiving either erythropoiesis-stimulating agents, and then either received a high-dose IV iron regime, or a reactive low dose iron regime?
0: So uh, what they did were patients who had a ferritin less than 400 or a iron saturation less than 30% were either given a high dose of iron or were given a low dose of iron when they fell. Um, They looked at a number of endpoints. When they looked at cardiovascular disease, they found that neither of the iron regimens had any difference in cardiovascular events. They also were interested in thrombosis and infections because those at least have a theoretical relationship to iron intake, especially high-dose iron intake. Infections in particular, and some small reports It's been suggested that giving high-dose iron may promote infections, but they did not see this in this randomized trial. They did find that the patients who got high-dose iron received more iron, about 264 milligrams over the course of the study, versus 145. Their ferritins were higher, 600 versus 100 in the reactive low-dose group. And with higher iron, they had a lower erythropoiesis-stimulating agent dose that was down about 19%, and they also got fewer transfusions. So, in general, it looks like there are substantial benefits to using the higher-dose iron without any of the downsides that we were afraid might be there.
1: And it was interesting, too, that they just gave these doses of iron during the dialysis visit, so it didn't require an additional visit or anything to the clinic. It was something that they easily incorporated into the daily lifestyle already of the patient.
0: Well, I was excited about our next study. This was the safety and effectiveness of Bexigliflozin in type 2 diabetes mellitus and stage 3A3B chronic kidney disease, a phase 3 randomized clinical trial. Uh, the lead author, Andrew Allegretti, presented. We know that diabetes is bad for the kidney, and we were excited a few years back to have a new class of agents, the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. Many of these drugs are on the market already, and they clearly lower blood sugar by inhibiting reabsorption of glucose in the kidney and allowing it to be excreted in the urine. However, because they depend on kidney function for their effect, it's been recommended that they not be given to patients with stage three or higher chronic kidney disease. We know that they are safe into stage three ACE from some other trials, And, in this particular trial, they were looking at clearances down to 30. What they found was that the SGLT2 inhibitor not only decreased A1c, but also decreased blood pressure, body weight, and albumin creatinine ratio by 20%. Um, Even in stage 3A and B, chronic kidney disease, they did not see any significant adverse events. So it appears to be safe and effective up until stage four chronic kidney disease.
1: Yeah, this was really exciting. And the fact that there is a non-injectable regimen that might also not lead to weight gain like as seen with insulin. So you have a blood pressure effect, a positive body weight effect, a lowering of H1C was really great to see. And so although they weren't powered to look at long-term outcomes, I think data will be coming from that. So the next trial we heard from was from Dr. Garg, and he was introducing us to the TRIX3 study, which is the effect of restrictive versus liberal approach to red blood cell transfusion on acute kidney injury in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. This was an international clinical trial of over 4,500 patients undergoing cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass. Patients were assigned to a restrictive red blood cell transfusion threshold, So that was transfuse if hemoglobin was less than 7.5 grams per deciliter intraoperatively or postoperatively until day 28 or hospital discharge. Or there was the liberal threshold, which was to transfuse if hemoglobin level was less than 9.5 grams per deciliter in the operating room or in the intensive care unit or less than 8.5 grams per deciliter on the non-intensive care ward.
0: Well, if you think about it, acute kidney injury following cardiopulmonary bypass is often attributed to problems with hypoxia or blood flow during the procedure. So there is at least a theoretical reason, since hemoglobin carries oxygen to the kidneys, that running lower hemoglobin might increase the risk of acute kidney injury. Transfusions are not benign, though, uh, they'll contain free hemoglobin and other things that happen when you take blood out of somebody and freeze it, and all of those can also be damaging to the kidney. Acute kidney injury occurred in 27.7% of patients in the restrictive threshold group and in 27.9% of patients in the liberal threshold group. So it looks like we can get away with running these patients with a much lower hemoglobin and much less blood. The restrictive group had 38% fewer transfusions without any change in AKI risk,
1: and that's very heartening to see. Yes, yeah, so overall, that'll save the blood supply, will reduce healthcare costs, and really help hopefully prevent some adverse events. Our next study was presented by Dr. Marotra, and this was a depression and dialysis trial called Ascend. And so this is comparative efficiency of the therapies of depression for patients undergoing hemodialysis. So depression is very common in patients undergoing hemodialysis, but limited data exists on increasing treatment acceptance or efficiency or efficacy of various antidepressant therapies. This was a multi-center randomized trial comparing the efficacy of cognitive behavior therapy versus sertraline, an antidepressant drug, for treating depression in patients undergoing hemodialysis.
0: Well, both treatments improved the depression scores in these patients, but the improvement was greater with the medical therapy than with the cognitive behavioral therapy. However, there were more side effects with the sertraline as
1: one would expect. So this is exciting because this allows physicians to make decisions for their patients based upon preference, cost, availability, and so either you can go with a behavioral intervention or go with a chemical intervention like sertraline. And
0: sertraline is a very safe antidepressant. It's been around for years, and it is available generic, so it's a rather cheap, cost-effective drug as well. And those were the late-breaking clinical trials for 2018. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology, all rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. This podcast should not be used in a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.